Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday, Sunday after Purim, and uh, do something a little uh, unusual, uh, uh, slightly different biography. Uh, this is being sponsored by Eliezer Gutman uh, in the Chuslam we see over here. Of Zadie Beryl Gutman, who he says been his living history book. Okay, um, thanks very much. And Elazar is going to Italy soon. This is how the whole thing started. He asked me if I would say a few words about Italian Jewry or something like that. He's going to Rome and Florence. As soon as he said Florence, uh, that made me think. And uh, I'll talk about somebody today you probably never heard of. Uh, Rabbi Shmuel Tzvi Margolius, uh, who was in Florence, but you can tell by the name, it's unusual. And uh, this is really a parsha. If I ever, I went once with a trip, we did a trip to Italy, uh, I don't know how many years ago, with a group, and we covered a lot of ground. But uh, I was going to do my own take on Florence. Didn't work out because all these tour guys uh, yak off their heads. And uh, I didn't get a chance to get in the way I wanted to. I'm still kind of new to this. Um, I need a tour guide for a country like Italy who's like blind, deaf, and dumb. Just knows where to go and leaves you there and then shuts up. Because they say different things and they get it wrong. And then, and what they say is not of interest to a group sort of mine. And anyway, I'm looking for um, to give my historical perspective. Because they have no idea what it is. So, uh, since you're talking about Florence Ferenzi, so I want to say a few words about this. Um, in order to understand what's going on, you have to know a little bit about the history of Italy, not that much, in the modern times. There never was a country called Italy. Uh, there's an Italian peninsula, but there was never a single state, as there is today, of a country called Italy, um as a single unit. Instead, the Italian peninsula was composed of a bunch of different states. I think we've discussed this from time to time. Every time I talk about some guttle or something like that over there, and I think you kind of know about it, but if you care to what I'm talking about, you'll just Google a map of Italy, let's say, for example, in 1800, not 1815, for example, and you'll see... There's about a dozen countries there, okay, roughly, or countries that administer territories. And so you'd see if you looked at such a map that the southern half of Italy, the boot, and a lot of territories called the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies or the Kingdom of Naples, uh, which for historical reasons had no Jews uh, for a long, long time because already in the 1500s it was conquered by the Spanish and became part of the Spanish Empire. And you and I know the Spanish kicked the Jews out. So there were no Jews in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, early 1800s in uh, Italy, except for Rothschild. One of the Rothschilds was there because they needed the money. But other than that, not. 
And then if you look north of that, you see like a belt sort of running through in a funny way all the way across Italy, and that's called the Papal States. And that was the kingdom ruled by the Pope. I've mentioned it many times. The Pope in Rome wore two hats in those days. Um, one, he's the head of the Catholic Church. That's a religious thing around the world. And secondly, he owned his own country. He was a king of a kingdom called the Papal States. Now, it shots like this. Every time the Pope dies, presumably he has no children, and they elect a new Pope. So it's not like, you know what I mean, the guy has a hereditary zah. Uh, but whoever became the new Pope was, among other things, a ruler of a kingdom. And there always were Jews in the Papal States. <clears throat> in the modern times, 15, 16, 1700s, let's say, 1800s, the Jews usually were persecuted by the Popes, but allowed to live there because they followed the teaching of the Catholic Church, which said that, you know, the Jews have the right to survive but not thrive. So therefore they should be condemned to ghettos. I'm talking about from the 1500s on, before it was different. Uh, 15, 16, 1700s, 1800s, they could live there, but they have to live in small numbers and ghettos with all kinds of economic and, and, and other restrictions and insalubrious quarters. And, you know, it was tough. But, on the other hand, if you were willing to live under those horrible rules, you were allowed to be Jewish and have a shawl and so forth and so on. Okay? So, I think you notice that there were always Jewish communities in Rome and in other places, and in Bologna and Ancona and so forth. Uh, so, those two kingdoms I just described is about two-thirds of Italy. And then comes the top part, and they have like ten countries. Is it is the Grand Duchy of Tuscany, which is immediately north. That's where Florence is. That's where our story is going to take place today. Uh, that was ruled by the Medici for a long, long time. And there the Jews were persecuted, but milder. Because the ruling family, the Medici, always added like a certain shtick for the Jews. And I'll come back to it in a second. North of that, you get all these little countries. There was the Duchy of Modena, the Duchy of Parma. In other words, there was a place called the Duke of Parma. He was like his own separate country. And then there was, uh, uh, well, this is after 1815, so they simplify. And then all the way up on the left, there's something called Piedmont, which is uh, where Turin is. That's the part near Switzerland and France. That's very important for our story. And Piedmont was called the Kingdom of Sardinia. Because because they ruled the island of Sardinia, get it? So for for certain reasons, it came, the guy wanted the title as king in the early 1700s. So that was called the Kingdom of Sardinia, but really it's the Kingdom of Piedmont. And a chutz from that is two areas called Lombardy and Venezia, which was ruled by the Austrian Empire as provinces of the Austrian Empire. The Italians hated it, but they were stuck with it for a long time. This is the situation of Italy for the first half of the 1800s, certainly after the fall of Napoleon, from 1815 to 1860, shall we say. As far as the Jews are concerned, in most of the countries, after Napoleon's time, there was a slight improvement in the Jewish situation. Uh, they didn't have to live in ghettos anymore, except in the part ruled by the Pope. There he still kept the ghettos. That's just interesting. But the Jews were certainly not regular citizens, and they had all kinds of rules and regulations tying them down, but it was less than it had been earlier than that. Now, 
so if you live, for example, in Tuscany, which is where you have our hero today, Florence and uh, Livorno and places like that. Livorno is a part of Neosmo, uh, but Siena, I mean, I, I don't know if you know where these places are. I'm just saying names. If you have any idea what I'm talking about, if you've ever been in Italy or something like that, you take trouble looking at a map. You'll, every one of these places had a small Jewish community. That's the weird part about Italy. This whole area that I'm pointing to that I just spoke about in the last two, three minutes had altogether about 40,000 Jews. A few here, a few there, a few there, a few there. Scattered all over the place. Again, none in South Italy, but yes, in Middle and North Italy. Okay? And uh, therefore, when you had a community like Florence, which had uh, 2,500, 3,000 Jews, that's a big zach in a place like Italy. You get it? Usually, the Jews were 10, 20, 30 families in this little place, that little place, that little place. That's how the history played out for the Jews. Now, if you followed the earlier bios I did, for example, to Zara Emmes the other day, you'll know that in this weird situation, in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, there was a Yiddishkeit going on over there. And there were even places with yeshivas, with yeshivas where you wouldn't expect it. Uh, in Ferrara, which is the northern part of the Papal States, after the Pachet Yitzhak Yeshiva, for a while in Mantua, again, which is part of Lombardy, and if not in Vienna, Venice proper, but yet in Padua. Padua, I always call it the Volusion of Italian Jewry, because there was a yeshiva there, which was a Chashva place, and it was in operation for hundreds of years. It was there from uh, the 1400s, and it survived into the 1500s, and into the 1600s, and into the 1700s, and then things changed in the 1800s. So my point is, if you want to understand Italian Jewry, I'm speaking broadly, of course, there are tiny pockets everywhere, and you'd be surprised at what, how much Yiddishkeit was going on. At the same time, when you live in such a small group and such a large population, you can't help but being affected by them. And so they picked up Italian and a lot of Italian ways, and they're affected by the culture in certain ways. Although the old-fashioned Jews used to try to stay culturally separate from the Goyim. But on the other hand, anybody who got any kind of an education beyond simply a Torah education, which many of them did, you pick up a lot of Italian culture, European culture. Remember, the rabbis, even Gedolim from the 15, 16, 1700s, of whom I've done a number of, of them in, in bios, uh, many of them went to the University of Padua and had PhDs and MDs, even though they were super from, and Gedoli Torah. That's what's unique about Italy. But all this collapses, I would say, in the 1800s. Okay? Uh, because the situation eased for Jews in some places, and for certain other reasons, uh, what happened was, and this is not only in Italy, but Italy is a very good example of this, what happened was, um, how should I put it? The yeshivas folded, and then you have a situation which is very unhealthy in terms of, from Judaism, we know this historically, because the only way to have a healthy from Judaism is not having yeshivas because it's got to be yeshivish, but then people have a connection between the practices that they're doing and the, and, and the origins and the reasons behind them. So if I'm keeping Shabbos, but I'm also familiar with 
the Gemara Shabbos, Mishnah Shabbos, things like that. Shulchan Aruch, even Kisser Shulchan Aruch Shabbos, you know what? Things like that. So I have some connection with what I'm doing. I have a sense of, uh, of a, a, attached to a, a living, throbbing tradition. But if I can't read Hebrew, and I don't have any shaykhs to any learning whatsoever, and I'm just carrying on these uh, ceremonies, uh, it gets weird, you understand? And it's being like, cut, it's like, you know, you're cut off from your yanika, you're cut off from any kind of um, organic connection with the literary, with the literature, which which gives meaning to what you're doing, and then it's just a question of time to whether it's away. And I would say in general, the schools and yeshivas and that sort of thing, which had a Gemara tradition, without the Gemara, you don't get it. Uh, they kind of withered away by the early 1800s with with the tiniest of exceptions. And as a result, uh, Judaism became something you just do, you know, because your parents did by rote. And that doesn't last too long. So as you get to the 1820s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and so forth, the practice of Judaism withers in a big way. However, that's counterbalanced by the fact that you're living in a super-Roman Catholic country. So in other words, a secular culture did exist, but at the same time, there's a very strong Roman Catholic presence. And so the way you are a normal person is you go to church on Sunday, where you have a priest perform certain rituals in a language you don't understand, which is Latin. And so the Jews, in a weird way, in Italy, will do the same thing. They'll go to a synagogue, and they'll have the rabbi perform certain rituals, and, you know, uh, births, deaths, you know, marriages, things like that. And you go once in a while, just like a Catholic would go once in a while to Mass. And you go man, you know, that's it. So you don't have any real organic connection with the Yiddishkeit. And the Catholics, there's a zillion of them. So they have a social framework. The Jews have always a small community, by contrast. And so it's hard, or it gets discouraging to keep all this up. And after a while, it totally withers away. You don't even do anything Jewish whatsoever. That's what happened in Italy in the 1800s. This was intensified by what they called the Risorgimento, which means that after 1815, when this map was put together, after the fall of Napoleon, there began an Italian nationalism movement, which is understandable. And they say, why should we divide divide up into 10, 15 countries? Doesn't make any sense. We're all Italians, just like all of France is one country, France, and and, um, all of England is one country, England. And Germany was in the process of trying to become one country. Why can't we? But each little government there, the Grand Duke of Tuscany, who was a Habsburg, actually, and a Pope, and a King of Naples, and so forth, each one didn't want to give up their own little Medina. And so there was a lot of fights and political violence and tension in the 45 years between 1815 and 1860 uh, when uh, the governments themselves uh, would crush any attempt by the locals to revolt and set up one large country that includes all of Italy in one Medina. And uh, they were always backed by the Austrian Empire. They were the, the superpower in connection with Italy. So anytime there was like an uprising, for example, in Parma, and they overthrew the government, the Austrian army would come in, crush the revolutionaries, and restore the Duke. Or it could happen to the Pope. Or, you know, you see what I'm saying. And so... I'm giving a very simplistic explanation of the tensions, but this is what happened. 
On the other hand, the younger generation of Italians uh, really wanted to get rid of the foreigners and have their own single country, uh, which makes sense. And it took a long time for it to happen. And this whole business of getting a new national consciousness, so I don't think of myself as a citizen of the Papal States or of the Kingdom of Naples or something like that, but I think of myself as an Italian and part of what should be a single country called Italy, that whole thing is called the resurgence, the resurgimento. So in Italy, and this is going to affect the Jews. So in Italy, you've had the Renaissance, that's a cultural zach, and you have the resurgimento, which is a political zach, okay? And, you know, people really got in it, and there were secret societies, and the police and the Austrians were always crushing them and torturing them. And it's a very romantic, famous period in European history. Jews, by the way, were often part of the revolutionaries because, you know, they thought that they'll do better under the other system. Now, what happened was, I don't want to get too technical in this, what happened was that there were two movements. One, to make a big republic and unite all the Italians. That didn't work. But the other way was that one of the kingdoms, namely Piedmont, was the most advanced and Europeanized of all these countries. Uh... They're not lazy Italians, they're the opposite. They're all the way up north and in the east. And without going through the details, eventually what happened was, starting in 1848-49, they um, looked for the opportunity to physically conquer militarily the rest of Italy, and that way united into one country, and that's what they did. It's a very complicated story. I'm not going to do it now. I'm not here to give a history lecture of that sort but this kingdom of Piedmont or Sardinia succeeded in its plan, in the, which 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 was very tortuous and complicated, but which came to fruition in 1859-1860-1861, and it resulted in the fact that the army of Piedmont, of the king of Piedmont, or if you want to be technical, the army of the king of Sardinia, uh was able to move in and physically take over and conquer the rest of Italy. Like I say, it's a complicated story, and part of it was Garibaldi, you know, but it's not no gay toss. So imagine Italy becoming a country around 1860. Okay? The guy who was the prime minister of Piedmont, uh, Count Cavour, Luigi Cavour, uh, was a 19th century liberal. He was sneaky, and he was a clever, shifty politician. But he succeeded in his goal of uniting Italy in the sense that his country conquered the rest of it. And now Italy is controlled by a single king, country. So the kingdom of Piedmont is now the kingdom of Italy. And um, the king of Piedmont now becomes the king of Italy. And remained that way until the Second World War. So the period we're talking about is called the period of the Kingdom of Italy, which is a very specific Zach, which lasts at approximately 80 years, from 1860s until the, 19, until the end of the Second World War. That's where our story today is going to take place. You understand, today there's a country called Italy, but it's a republic. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a Tukufa, when there was a thing called the Kingdom of Italy, uh, which had the characteristics I just described, and which had altogether about 40,000 Jews. Something like that. Now, it so happened that Count Cavour, this Count Luigi Cavour, 
uh, and it was a count, like a nobleman, uh, was a was a liberal as far as the Jews are concerned. And so he, there's reasons for it. He had a Jewish secretary, blah, blah, blah. But the bottom line is, see, he made it that the new country of Italy, which is going to unite by force all the different territories. In other words, the army of Piedmont, with the help of the French, conquered Lombardy, and then they conquered Parma, and then they physically conquered Tuscany, and eventually even the Papal States, etc., etc., and the Pope was his own holdout, took another 10 years, but finally they took that over also. And uh, then, as a result of what I just said, a single kingdom now controls the whole Zach, so he called it the Kingdom of Italy. And that kingdom gave complete and total civil rights to the Jews, complete citizenship. That was the program of Count Cavour, and the king, at that time, backed it. The king was King Victor Emmanuel, Victor Vittorio Emanuele. Now, I'll tell you something. When you go to Italy today, the tour guides want to take you where they want to take you. And so, King Victor Emmanuel was very uh, pompous and vain. And wherever you go in Italy, there's a big statue to him. And the tour guides don't like him. And they don't consider it an artistic business. And they always say it's like the man on the wedding cake. But I always insist on, on taking the group over there. Because from a Jewish point of view, he's a very important figure. He got rid of all the junk and the crud that the Jews had to put up with for over a thousand years. All the ghettos and all the stupid laws and terrible persecution and all this kind of stuff was completely uh, uh, done away with. Okay? Was completely done away with by King Victor Emmanuel and Count Cavour. So if you were a Jew living in Italy in the from 1860 on to, let's say, 1939, you uh, from the legal point of view... You had total and complete rights. Believe me, the Jews uh, uh, appreciated that. Uh, like I say, no more ghetto, no more laws about clothes, no more laws about what business you can go into, and you have complete... Uh, I mean, let me put it this way. They had ministers in the government. There was even a, a Jewish prime minister, Luigi Luzzati, around 1900. Uh, the Jew could become prime minister in Italy. is amazing, because it's a totally Catholic country. Now, he wasn't a from guy, but nevertheless, it goes to show you, the mayor of uh, Rome, Ernesto Nason, became was a Jew. You you had a situation where, I would say, there's less anti-Semitism in Italy than there was elsewhere. Now it's not it's all overdone. There was anti-Semitism. The Catholic Church didn't like this. But guess what? The Kingdom of Italy. I'll say it again. This doesn't exist anymore. But when it did, just without going through all the reasons. The kingdom of Italy was hated by the Catholic Church, and they put him in Cheyram, and therefore the kingdom of Italy didn't like the Catholic Church, and therefore they didn't mind if a Jew gets power, because screw the Catholic Church, you understand? Uh, the Catholic Church did not recognize the kingdom of Italy. The Pope said, I'm a, I'm a prisoner in Rome, even though that's baloney. And the, 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 so I'm saying from the Jewish perspective, that was kind of good because it meant that the Italian state is not going to be run by the Catholics, but by people who the Catholics hate. So from the Jewish point of view, it was good. I hope you understand what I said over there. I did my best to simplify it. Now, the problem is, everybody was so caught up in all this, these are very important events. And the Jews were swept by this new liberalism and the citizenship and the abolition of all the, the, the junk. I mean, as late as 1858, 
just before this happened, you had the Mortara case, where a kid, a Jewish kid in Bologna, which which belonged to the Pope, was taken by the nurse without the parents' permission and baptized, because they were in shul for Yom Kippur. And then the church said afterwards, they said, well, she shouldn't have done it. But she did it. The kid is now Catholic, and they wouldn't give the kid back to the parents. And the kid grew up to be a priest. That was all tragedy. In other words, as late as 1858, they did it. Now, two years later, it was not possible because the, the kingdom of Italy came into being and the church was swept aside and you had a new situation where the Jews now have complete and total rights. You can't do that to them. So it's The problem is, as often happens, this led to a tremendous desire to Jews to super assimilate into Italianism, to be super patriotic beyond anybody else, and to give up a lot of their Yiddishkeit, and particularly the from parts. And so what happened was, all across Italy, there was a tremendous decline in uh, in Yiddishkeit. They never went reform. It's important to say this. They never went like that. But it was orthodox, but very, very schwach. Uh, and that's the heart of our story today. Now, during this period... There are basically two places that had any Torah teaching at all. And both were pretty schwach. One was a Padua and one was a, a Livorno. The one in Livorno we can skip for now. That's Elio Benamosek. Just leave it at that. But our story has to do with Padua. You will perhaps recall, as I just mentioned even today, that Padua had a yeshiva that was important among the Torah for hundreds of years. I would say it was in a decline in the late 1700s, but it was still there. And at, after the Napoleonic Wars, the territory of Padua, which is Venice and Lombardy, those two parts of Italy, two big provinces in the northeast, were taken over by the Austrian Empire. So they were ruled by Austria. The Austrians um, pushed Haskalah. Now, in different parts of the Austrian Empire, the Jews reacted differently. In Italy, the Jews kind of always had a Haskalah. Get it? But it, they were from anyway. I told you before, there were big rabbinim who went to, to university. There were others who were, uh, you know, uh, familiar with Italian culture and literature and all that junk. And they were from. So, the idea that the government, the, the Austrian emperor would say, in the aftermath of the um, Napoleonic Wars, now we're ruling over here, so we want the yeshiva changed to a seminary. You hear how I said it? We want the yeshiva changed to a seminary. And and the Italian Jews did it. So what used to be called the yeshiva Padua now was transformed into the rabbinical seminary of Padua. So a seminary means you teach Lamudi Chol also, and it's more in the form of, yeah, you have a class in Gemara here, or a class in Gemara there, a class halacha here and there, uh, but a lot is Bible, a lot is uh, philosophy, they've written, and so forth and so on. So you switch to that model, and uh, actually the university, the rabbinical seminary in Padua was the first. So officially it was from, and the main guy there was Shadal, Shmuel W. Lusato, who I see now is getting some kind of a revival in certain circles. Uh and it was religious in a certain way, but a very modern kind of way. See a picture with a yarmulke. And the emphasis, I would say, would be 
on Chachmas uh, Yisrael more than Torah Yisrael, but it officially was from. And that is where you're supposed to have rabbis who graduate, and they will be recognized by the state as Rabbanim, and they will have stellars and things like this, and they'll get a salary from the government. But that kind of a rabbi, obviously, is going to be one who's not going to be a real big Talmud Chacham. There's no, not enough time for learning. To give him the credit, I would say Shadal and the, and the Padua Seminary tried to make it that the rabbi should be an, a from guy, but also in a very modern kind of way. Okay? The whole thing was pretty schwach. And by the time the Kingdom of Italy was formed, Shadal died in 1865, I think. So the whole thing kind of fell into desuetude. What I mean to say is like this. The institution kind of stopped, heart stopped beating. And they transferred it to Rome in 1870 when Rome became the capital of of, um, of Italy. But again, it wasn't really functioning. It was, it was, and you know, you, you, you know some institutions that are like that. Okay? And it's a reflection of the fact that Judaism in general in Italy was really in bad shape, which is in contrast to their political situation, which was in good shape. As a matter of fact, any of you who have been in Italy, you'll come and you see some of these gigantic synagogues. There are three of them. Uh, they were all built at the same time under the kingdom of Italy that I'm describing now, and not before that, because before that you couldn't. Uh, there are three large synagogues that are written in the Moorish style, look like a Moorish cathedrals, which is a tartarissa, but nevertheless it's there. One in Rome, one in Florence, and one in uh, Turin, Turin, Torino, they call it. Uh, they look all alike. And that shot was, the Italian Jews were saying, oh, now we can come out of the closet, we don't have to live in the ghetto, we can build a, a respectable-looking shoal that looks just as good as any church. You know, you, you hear it like that. Now, well, again, one was in Rome, one was in Florence, one was in Turin. Florence is a beautiful, it's unbelievable. The whole world goes there, art students. Have you ever been? I was in Florence. You go to, there's a lot of Christian stuff and a lot of Renaissance and Baroque. If you're into that, in other words, let's put it this way. The world is divided into those who are art students and things like that and those who aren't. So if you're not, it doesn't mean anything to you. But if you are, which is a belt of people that are, so Florence is like the headquarters in the world of the Italian art. And it's amazing stuff if you see the the uh, sculptures and the fancy churches and the buildings. I mean, going back literally to the Renaissance, it was the heart. It was the heart of the Renaissance. You know, Michelangelo was from Florence. You know, the Medici, the palaces, and all that business. Now there had always been Jews there, but and and the ruling family was relatively benevolent to the Jews, but nevertheless, for certain reasons, in the late fifteen hundreds, they made a ghetto. I would say the ghetto in Florence was less strict than the other ones. And if you were rich, you didn't have to live in the ghetto. It's a whole parsha by itself. Uh, but it was a ghetto. And um, there was a from community there, a Kehillah, uh, as you would imagine, with from Jews. And there were some, I, I wouldn't think out loud offhand of any real big gedolim that were abundant in Florence. There maybe was one or two, Dikri Hadad, you know, there was a few. But uh, nevertheless, it was a stark Jewish community back in the day, uh, partly Italian Jews, Italiani, partly Sephardic Jews who moved there. They had a couple of shoals like you would have in the ghetto, you know, small shoals. And Jewish life in the Italian small way 
it was uh, strong. Okay, it was strong. But now comes the 1800s and all these changes, and the Richie Riches uh, are now rising to the topic of if it's a modern secular state, then everything's run on money. Everything's run on money. Uh, Florence continued to be the headquarters of the Italian intellectuals and so forth. You had the very heavy, um, uh, what shall I say, hashba of the Italian culture, which is impressive. Okay? And it's just an interesting place to be. Now, uh, no more ghetto also. So, uh, the Yiddish guy went down the tubes. People didn't go to shul hardly ever. Um, the Chinuch fell apart. Uh, Shmir Smitzvah's. Yeah, I mean, there's a few. Figure a city of about 25, three, let's say 2,800 Jews total. And figure 100 of them, 200, something like that, 300 were observant. And the others not. I mean, that that's how it was. Okay? Now, the intelligent members of the community, the educated ones, most of them didn't give a darn. And they liked it the way it was. A few gave a darn. And they didn't like it. They said, how can we, what do we do? They said, we have to get a rabbi. Um, but, it, you know, who, who's a, uh, a scholar and so forth. But it's got to be a modern guy. Because somebody's old-fashioned rov, which they hardly had any left in Italy anyway. They're not going to bring somebody from Poland, you know. So uh, it's going to be no shyness to the, to the people. So how do you get a guy who's like from and modern in the same way but not too from either. So the longer the short of it is that the president, one of the big mockers in the community, had met in a business trip. Uh, the guy who I'm going to talk about today uh, had to spend a long time just by the by the Hakdama, and that's Shmulzvi Margulius, who was a Galtzianer from uh, Berjan. Uh, Berjan is a is a town on the border between Austria-Hungary on the one hand and Russia. The border ran through the middle of the town. This is where the Maharsham is. So some of you, the Frumis out there, will know the Maharsham was Berzhanarov. It's one of those towns, since we have a war going on now between Putin and Ukraine, which really uh, personifies all these uh, uh, battles that go on in that part of Europe. Just go online and see how you pronounce Berzhan. And they'll say, uh, the Ukrainians will say, B-B-B, and the Russians will say, boo-boo-boo, and the German will say, bah, bah, bah. the Jews call it Berjan. I'm serious, it's like totally different pronunciations. And that's because by the standards of the time we're talking about, it, it was in the very tip of, eastern tip of eastern Galicia, the, the, the part near Bells, in other words, the part facing Russia. Uh, but it's all Ukraine, really, you get it? The eastern Galicia is really Ukraine. I just did a talk on it two, three weeks ago, and we're putting it up online today or tomorrow, the 16th final lecture of my series, I had to give a little history of the Ukraine stuff because of the situation. And you'll see what you call Galatianers is most of it's what you call Ukraine. But at that time they called Galatianers. Obviously, we're talking the 1800s, it was a big Malcolm Torah, Galicia. I mean, we're, th- th- these are places near Lemberg, or now they call Lviv, uh, Lviv, Lviv, so forth. And, um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, how should I put it? It's uh, very, you know, <laughs> uh, it was a big Yiddishkeit center. It was a town of about 10,000 people, 4,000 or 5,000 were Jewish. 
After Marsham was a rabbi, you can understand. Although, to tell you the truth, a lot of people were emigrating out there because of tremendous poverty. But if I told you the Marsham was the rabbi there, you'll understand immediately that they had a Torah elite. They had a scholarly elite, which is very characteristic of the uh, This is the Tekufa of the Minchas Chinuch, you know, Sholamesha, people like that. Our hero was born in 1858. Is born at a time, in other words, that if you're a member of the elites, families, uh, you're big Talmud Chachamim, among other, whatever else you are. Whatever else you are. Okay? And um, our hero came from an elite family. Uh, if his name is Shmuel Tzvi Margulius, he's like related to Ephraim Zalman Margulius, and the whole big Margulius family, of which my mother actually was a member. And, you know, they were, uh, uh, you know, what's the right word? Learned and rich. You know, that's usually what, you know, a lot of were Rabbonim, merchants who knew Shas, you know, that kind of thing. And Galitzi certainly had that. For some reason, some people think Galitzi is not a Malcolm Torah. They're very wrong. Uh, that's the Lithuanian-centric. It's, it's, it's not true. It was big center Yiddishkeit. And our hero was born in the middle of the 1800s, grew up there, and you can imagine as a young kid who was a, a Balkishran, so he learned with Big Rabbanim, he was a, learning nearby in Buchach and places like that. And so, you know, the Talmud Chacham. On the other hand, it's the middle of the 1800s, which is the peak years of the appeal of the Haskalah, and not only Haskalah, I would say, the idea to, to, to learn uh, world culture, European culture, because, you, you know, if you have cultural insularity, it can be experienced as warm and cozy, as I always say, or stifling and narrow. And for a lot of kids growing up in the 19th century, they felt it like stifling and narrow. Uh, and from community usually didn't know what to do with them. A lot of them went off to Derek. Uh, Hirsch, same thing, remember Hirsch kept saying, Try term derecheres, but you know they were too from over there to do term derecheres, even though it usually meant that they screw up with the kids. So it was a complicated kind of world that was going at that time, and our hero is a perfect example of that, because obviously if he's growing up in 1858, so how old is he in 1878? You know, 20 years old. By that time, he said, "I just don't. Want, I don't want to be just in a shtetl and just on Gemara and all that kind of stuff." I'm, I'm interested in Limudi Chol. That doesn't want to mean I want to be Machal Shabbos. I'm interested in Michal. And the notion that you have that every, you know, Chodesh Menasser, what's Chodesh Menasser Menatoro, and that whole Haredi business uh, was a tremendous turnoff to guys like him. And I don't know the details, but suffice it to say, and by the way, he wants to be a rabbi, which is interesting. He's an intellectual. So suffice it to say, he goes to Germany to the conservative seminary. Uh, there were three sem- uh, rabbinical seminaries in Germany, Orthodox Conservative Reform. Uh, the Orthodox was Hildesheimer, the Conservative was from, from Zachary Frankel, and then Gretz, the historian, and then others. And the Reform was the Reform. There were a lot, most of the people who went to the Conservative Seminary came from front families. That was even true in America. When you went to the seminary here, it could, it could be modern Orthodox or it could be left-wing non-Orthodox. It was very complicated. And there were some people who graduated there. Those they learned in the seminary and they also went to university 
and they got a full secular education, including a PhD, which our hero did from Leipzig. Uh, and there were some, because it was a traditional, you know, where the graduates were, were from. Uh, there were many that were not from. Rev Hildesheimer and Hirsch, they said anybody goes there automatically is trafe. Just by the fact you went there. Well, that just was not true. There were some that went there to stay from. And in their rabbinical careers, pushed the from agenda. But always within the context of what I would call modern orthodox. Because by definition, anybody's going to a seminary, something like that, is open-minded, shall we say, to uh, you know various trends. And that's who exactly our hero was. So you can take a picture of one line. It looks like a 19th century Western rabbi with the Galach outfit, all the rest of it. The Orthodox look like that. They're in Western Europe, they're reformed, the conservative did. The idea is that a guy like this, first of all, knows German, knows European languages, has a PhD. He also knows the Jewish stuff. That's not where our hero became a Talmud Chacham from. He became a Talmud Chacham when he was a kid learning in Galicia, you know, in these hardcore Bate Medrash and learning, talking and learning the Gonim. And that's where he picked up his learning. In Breslau, you'd learn how to do um, uh, Talmud criticism, the different parts of the Talmud, all the rest of it, you know, how it was put together and things like that. So it's just interesting. And I think he graduated when he was like 25, something along those lines, which would put him in the early 1880s. Okay? And um, or maybe a little bit later. And he got a job as a rabbi in Germany for a while in what we would call a liberal community, uh, which means, as if we're, you know, they don't want the rabbi for drinking them a cup about driving on Shabbos, as we'd say today. But it could still be pretty traditional. Well, here comes the funny part. In 1890, so that means he would be 32 years old. 32 years old. So he saw an ad in the paper that they're looking for a rabbi in Italy. And I think the guy who was head of, commu- uh, of the committee knew him. And so the long and the short of it is he got elected to be the rabbi in Florence. So he's a Gavsi honor with a conservative Yekish education, conservative German education, a PhD and so forth. He's going to be rabbi in Italy, which is like its own universe. Italy has its own realities, as I just said before. And he stayed with that still until he died. He was in his early 60s when he died. He died young, relatively, giving a speech, as we'll see. So he was about 30, 32 years the rabbi in Florence. Now, it, a shidduch is a shidduch. It's, it's always funny. This guy might work out with this girl, or totally not. But the same guy who totally doesn't work out with this girl could work out great with another girl, right? Or the other way around. This girl could not be Tsugapas for this guy. It would be a disaster if they got married. But if she meets another guy, it could click, and it could be. So that's true in the rabbin as well. Sometimes a person, uh, depending on where you get your position, you could be on the extreme right religiously compared to your congregation, or on the extreme left. You get it? So um, I shouldn't use this example, but I will because it comes to mind. You can see some modern YU guy, if he was like in a... uh, uh, a Lakewood type congregation. The fact that he's a gray hat as opposed to a black hat would like make him up a chorus. On the other hand, if he has a modern congregation somewhere else, the fact that he wears a hat at all 
puts him on the extreme right. You see, you know, that kind of thing. So in the case of Shmuel Tzvi Margolis, when he came to Italy at that particular time, he turned out to be in the extreme right. And he devoted the rest of his career in a very interesting way to pushing things as much as he could for greater Shmir Mitzvahs, for Torah and Derech in the in the real sense of the term Derech and for pushing everything, pushing everything in a front direction. So it's really interesting uh, where you are and what kind of stellar you get. And I imagine that's why he took the job. Because the guy that came, in my opinion, as, as I understand him, f- felt much more comfortable being to the right of his Balabatim than being to the left. You understand? And uh, he learned Italian very quickly. Because that counts a lot. In fact, it's a famous story. He learned Italian, you know, the way a foreigner would learn English. Uh, and he met the King of Italy because he made it his business to be friends with the King of Italy, which was smart from the Claudius Thrall point of view. And um, the kings of Italy were pretty liberal. The, the, there were like three or four kings of Italy. I told you, it doesn't exist anymore. So Victor Emmanuel was pro-Jewish, and King Umberto after him was also pretty good with the Jews. And the guy after him, there were like three kings, that's all. Victor Emmanuel III was the, the last king. And yeah, overall, you know, they got along with the Jews fine. Because uh, there were only 40,000 in the whole country, 50 million people. It's, it's, it's a, a tipa, you know? And anyway, there was a lot of assimilation. And so uh, I remember the king of Italy said like this, boy, you have a perfect Italian. I can't tell what district you come from. Usually you can tell by the accent. You come from Naples, you come from Venice, all the rest of it. Where's yours? Because it, it was fake. fake. You know, when I'm, in other words, he learned it as a brand new language. So he did act as the rabbi of Florence. And he did all the things that you would want from a modern rabbi to give speeches, you know, uh, represent the community, um, you know, with government officials, uh, visit the sick, all the pastoral kind of junk that is associated with the modern notion of the rabbi. Notice he would match a Catholic priest in that regard, okay? Plus, he has a PhD, so I would put him ahead of a Catholic priest who usually didn't have the education, and, you know, he's an intellectual guy, so you could present him to your Christian neighbors, if they come and visit the shul, he'll give a sermon that wouldn't make a, make you feel uncomfortable. He did all the chitzonis type of things like that. And that is true. So he was the rabbi of that gigantic shul. If you've ever been to Florence, and uh, I imagine, as I said before, our sponsor today told me he's going to Florence, uh, you'll see the giant shul there. I told you, there's three of them in Italy. They all look alike. They're all built the same way by a geisha architect. One in Rome, one in um, Florence, and one in Turin. Uh, and in, in Florence, it fits very nicely because you have all these super fancy, schmancy, artistic buildings. And he was the rabbi there. Now, mind you, the Balabatim, and by that I mean the Richie Riches, they ruled the roost. The 100 or so frummies were totally pushed aside. Uh, they, they built this giant shul and they had an organ played by a guy. And there's nothing you could do about it. You understand? Know, so that's the way they wanted it. There were a number of places in Europe where you had this phenomenon I just described. They're orthodox shuls. You get what I'm saying? The service is orthodox, and officially everything's orthodox, but they don't care. You know, they, they, they have organ. Now, in Germany, they said the very fact you have organ makes you trave. That's not how they felt in many places in Europe. 
in many, uh, it's strange to us today because this is no longer the case. Uh, and it's no longer the case because they stay within orthodoxy. And in orthodoxy, you have a swing. Sometimes the pendulum swings this way, sometimes it swings back. So there are a lot of cases where there are like mitzvahs that die and then they're revived. And a lot of times there's a virus that are alive and then they go away. And um, in Belgium, in France, in England, believe it, in some places, in Italy, there are there were countries in the 1800s and in, in, I would say down to the middle of the 20th century where there were orthodox shuls and they had organs. Uh, now again, in Germany is unheard of. In America is unheard of. That doesn't mean that the whole world is like Germany and America. You, you get what I'm saying? Get used to that. And uh, I myself was in the in uh, the shoals in Italy. I remember in Livorno, while the lady was talking, I just wandered around the back and I saw that behind the bima, behind the uh, Arncotish area or something like that, was an organ. Now, it's not used anymore. That's my point. These from the old days when they used to use them. Now the shoals in Italy are from. They don't use them. Uh, because, uh, what's the right word? Akshadara, you know what I mean? Uh, but that's a key point to what our hero is all about, because he was a major influence in the Akshadara. Uh, but not during his time. When he was when he was the rabbi there, you know, the Balabatim put their foot down, and they said, this is staying. So, imagine, now I know he's Ashkenaz, and there was a side minion, and I think he davened in the side minion first, early in the morning, as we shall see, and then he went to the main services to give the speech and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, it was pretty clear he didn't approve of it, but they did it anyway. So welcome to Italy, my friends, the screwed up world of Italy. Now, when he came there, he saw that the Yiddish guy is totally schwach. He didn't have any children. He was married, but he didn't have kids. So he threw himself totally into the job. And I would say the interesting thing to me about him from day one is he got it. Namely... It's all about chinuch. Nothing works. Speeches and all this other junk doesn't work. The only thing that works is education. And when I say chinuch, I mean real chinuch in the sense that you eventually have to have a Gemara stuff. Now, in Italy, it'll never, ever, ever be Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. But even to have a Gemara, period, was a big step forward. And like one of the first things he does is organize an elementary school, uh, in meaning English and Hebrew, Italian and Hebrew. Uh, the so at least the little children would get some Jewish knowledge and put a lot of time and effort into that. So in other words, yes, I'll kiss up to the Richie Rich and I'll make the speeches and all the rest of it, but the main, my main job is to try to be mechanic to the degree I can, uh, the, the younger generation, and that's what he put 30 years into. Okay? Uh, eventually, he... So, in other words, this is a person who's by temperament of a chanach. And it's just very interesting. And he was a Talmud Chacham. And from day one, whoever will listen to him, he says, Judaism is all about Shemir Samitzvah. Get over it. <laughs> you know? Without that, it's nothing. And, you know, he pushed as much as he can. Now, over the years, he gathered around him, you know, some of the teenagers, some of the youth. You could never get them all. Some of this. And this is what he put his cocos into. And eventually, uh, so if you lived in Florence, in other words, you had at least somebody there, the only voice of of some kind of Torah. 
everybody went to, to, to public school. And so he would have a daily class for the teens, like at five in the morning in, uh, you know, in Gemara and later in, in, in uh, Shulchan Aruch or something like that. I mean, and the, and the kids went. I'll say it again, like five in the morning. And on Shabbos, they had to go to school. So that means you have your your uh, uh, services for the teens, again, like five in the morning. Uh, and they'll come. And eventually, people heard about him. And he wasn't a from me, but he's very from. And so, but he's a modern guy. He has a PhD and so forth. And so eventually... The Jews in Italy said, the, the powers that be, this school that I told you about before, the rabbinical seminary was in Padua, which kind of died out, and went to Rome, it was uh, dead over there. They said, let's bring it to Florence and put this guy in charge. And he was happy to do it. And so this took place about 10 years after he came to Florence. And um, so that became the rabbinical college, the Collegio Rabbinico. And that's the, that's the most you could get in Italy. You could not get a yeshiva. Now, I saw a student of his, Pacifici, Pacifici, who wrote, he said, we were always wondering, why did you just start a yeshiva? It's a good question. A guy like him could have gone a different route, but didn't. He could have gone the route, what I would say, the Hersheyan route. And in this lies a, a very interesting insight, I believe. Um, you can go to a because that's what we've done in America. Uh... You can work through the kahila and try to make things better. Or you can say, I'm wasting my time with these idiots. I'm banging my head against the wall. They'll never really get it. I'll get a few and make a separate, like like what Herschel would call an Austerit's community, you know, a separate community. Not for the purpose of saying, I declare you trade, but simply for rallying the faithful. You understand? In other words, should I be a rabbi in a shul where I, I'm exposed to 100 kids, but most of them are totally indifferent? It's, far, it's hard to get the attention of the 10 that are shocked to the parasha. Or should I make my own shtibel, get those 10 kids in there, and give all my tochas to those 10 kids, and turn them from, and at least you'll have a tiny little area within the, the community, within the city, within this area, will be, you know, kulal taras Uh So do you have the communal approach, which you say you need a klal approach, and you try to deal with the whole community, basher husham, and each person, you try to move as, as much as you can in the right direction, realizing up front, like the Keturahs, some of them you'll have more luck with, some of them you have less luck with. The Rove, it'll never work, but Mamiya, it'll work. That's a Claudius role, old-fashioned approach from century to century. That's who our hero was. Whether he was right or not, whether he would have better results, you know, going the other way, the Hershey way, shall we say, is, an interest, is a very interesting question, which I tell you... Um, his student wrote, I never heard of this guy, but I did long ago, meaning I wouldn't have heard him regular, but when I was young, I read the Leo Young books. And he remember like Men of the Spirit and all that kind of the Guardians of the Spirit and so forth, where he had these, um, Leo Young in the late 50s and in the 50s and early 60s. Very nice job, collected these biographies of, I guess, famous rabbis who I was a kid, I never heard of them. I only discovered them from the book. And I saw this guy Margulius in Italy, and I said, "Huh, you know, um, I never, you know, th that's where I, I found out about him." And it was written by students of his, and they spoke with extreme veneration. And one of them said, "Why didn't he make yeshiva? That would have been better." 
or something like that. But they all said that he had a tremendous uh, personality and he was a, a natural born mechanech um, and he was an inspiring person. And that's what he put all of his kochas into, into trying to inspiring the young to uh, get more Yiddishkeit. Hopefully become Shomri Torah Mitzvahs. Uh, and he had a certain success. Uh, but always in small numbers because Italy is very small. The whole dog on Italy from top to bottom is 40,000. And really you have to subtract because a lot of them became assimilated into marrying all the rest of it. So really you're talking about 35,000 people in the whole country from the top of Italy to the bottom. That's a small number. So whatever you're going to deal with, you, de- you, have to, you just have to think small. And you have to redefine success not in terms of quantity but in terms of quality. And that's who he was. He really put his kaychas into quality, uh, as much quantity as he could get, but quality above all, with very, very interesting results. Because he they eventually made the rabbinical college over there. So that means it's like, um, uh, how should I put it? You go half a day for the for, for Limude Kodesh, and then you go to university to get a degree. In Florence, the University of Florence. Uh, what do you do in the in the, in the half that's Limude Kodesh? So it's kind of weird. Things had to be held because it's Italy and Yabalabatim that have big expectations in terms of the the secular validity of it. So he had to get, and I think he himself, his nature was, was to get first class teachers uh, who are PhDs who know their stuff very well. The two guys he got were not exactly from, they were sort of like himself. Uh, I guess we call it the extreme right of the conservative movement. Can I use that term? But it's hard for us to understand this because in America and in Germany, conservative was automatically a sharp break from Orthodox and like puts you in a different machine. These guys were trying to stand on both sides of that and push things in a more firm direction. He, he sure was. So you got to remember Tzvi Peretz Chayes and uh, Dr. Elbogen from Germany. These are guys that also came through the uh, conservative seminary in Germany, uh, were very good scholars, and were excellent teachers. Knows they could be very, what's the right word, um, inspiring to the students. You know, charismatic, that's it. Charismatic teachers. And I guess he wanted that above anything else. Oops, I better turn this off. I'll be back in a second. I had to be interrupted to go to my grandson's uh, birthday party. Uh, where was I told in? I think I was talking about uh, the rabbinical college, which is as close as you get to yeshiva that he set up in Florence in 1890, where it remained for many years. And here, he had a chance to do uh, have a wider audience, I should say, meaning he had... Listen, this is Italy. The yeshiva, the, the the school must have been small. I would estimate this is just a guess on my part. Ten, twenty people, tops. That's what I think. So this is small, but they will be the rabbonim in the in the future. They'll be the rabbis of the communities. Uh, it's going to be modern because all the communities are going to be, you know, uh, Italian modern communities. You need a rabbi with an education. If the guy has a a, a PhD from Italian university, that gives tremendous chashivas and so on and so forth. That is all true. And anyway, to, in order to uh, interact in an intelligent fashion with people in your community who themselves are educated, they would have no respect for a guy who doesn't understand literature, doesn't understand philosophy, art. You get it? You gotta 
have this kind of stuff to get creds in those days. But he himself gave the shiurim. Um, and most important, I think he gave what I, what I would call the schmoozes and the hashpah. And he was tremendously charismatic. That's what comes across. Even though it's a small group, but it's an elite group. And even though it's no comparison, but you think, for example, of, um, you know, the Magad Mezrich with a dozen or so people who are going to become the Rebbe's of the future. Obviously, that's in a different uh, level of universe. But by the tiny standards of Italy, these people will be the Mashpim of the future generations. So if I can't get to every young person in Italy, I can do it indirectly, hopefully, by getting to the whole generation of people who are going to become Rabbanim in the smart, in the large communities, the middle communities, and the small communities, and they, inspired by my hashkaf and my ideas, hopefully will work each one in his own way in his particular kehillah to get the maximum results. And so, uh, in order to do this and be impressive in the way I said, you needed a guy with a PhD, as well as you need someone who's a genuine Talmud Chacham, because he gave the shiurim in Shas and Poskim. I just want to be clear about this. Maybe the other guys, Tzvi Peretz Chayis, and then the Elbog, maybe they gave like introductory classes, but he gave uh, what I would say the advanced shiurim, such as it were. Now, it's not to be compared to Yeshiva Lithuania, something like that, or Galicia, but nevertheless, you're talking about, you know, Gemaris, Togis, Shulchan Aruch. Now, this is Italy. Don't talk to me about the, uh, what do you call it, the Mishnah uh, Burna. Uh, well, of course, it didn't even exist. Chayotam. Italy means the Italian tradition is the Machaber, the Ramah, and the Italian Minhagam. I mean, that, that is what it was, okay? It's not what you imagine. It's the Machaber, Ramah, and the Italian Minhagam. Maybe I should say, possibly, the, uh, to some degree, you know, the Berhaitiv uh, or something like that. Not even. The Italian tradition was its own tradition. Um, and so you're talking about the basics of Shabbos, the basics of Kashrut, and so on and so forth. And I can't hammer home as, uh, 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 sufficiently hard the way he did all the time. There's no Judaism without Torah mitzvahs, that's all. And that was a Chiddush over there. Uh, now, that's not all Judaism is. He would say, you know, you also have philosophy, and you have this, and you have that, no question about it. But the heart of it stands and falls on Shemir Smithus. This is quite a uh, speech. And it had to come in together, interwoven with talks about philosophy, Renaissance, art, literature. You had to do it in the right way that an Italian could, spoon, you know, could, could, could swallow the spoon, you know, the, t- the teaspoon. And he did it. And as a result, it was just interesting that there starts around the 1890s and it continues until the 1930s. This very interesting phenomenon where, not quantitatively, but qualitatively, people become BTs. Uh, it's, it's really quite remarkable. And I mean from, from all kinds of backgrounds, from 50% backgrounds, from zero backgrounds, there were... <clears throat> The way he put it over and his students carried the ball after him was to come out with Jewish pride and embrace your Jewish identity, at the heart of which is the Jewish faith. At the heart of Jewish faith is the Torah and the Tariq Mitzvahs. And, you know, and you explain them in a, you know, Maimonidean way or whatever way they did in a nice way. And this defines you. And it's not a question of criticizing those who don't keep. Because remember, this is a conservative situation. It's not about criticizing the others. 
but it's about accentuating the positive, which reminds you very much, 100 years ago, we're talking about basically what have become the tools of Kirov nowadays. Ask any Lubavitcher or something like that. You don't go around criticizing everybody. Try to build up as many mitzvahs as you can. That's exactly what was going on at that time in a much smaller orphan. If a guy can pick up 50% Shabbos, Matova Manoim, hopefully we'll move to 100% Shabbos. If you can pick up this, you can pick up that. And I can tell you, this is an unknown, relatively unknown uh, chapter in Jewish history, but Florence became the headquarters of what you what they used to call the Jewish Resurgimento, right? Which is a kind of a Jewish renaissance, but a small number, but high quality. And so highly educated people uh, flipped to become uh, um, Shomotar Mitzvahs. Uh, I remember there's a guy whose father was a general in the Italian army. And, you know, after he exposed all this, you know, he got a, a bris at the age of 20, 25, you know, because they were so similar, he didn't even have a bris. You have no idea what you're dealing with. Now, the problem is that for all the push that he gave, there was a counter push in the left-wing direction because of the times. I would say this era, which is called the Fantasiacal, the 1890s, early 1900s, and so forth, was like the peak years of a sim- of, of the power of European civilization to attract. There's no question that for most Jews, I'm sorry to say this, you know, European civilization appeared to be much more superior to Jewish civilization. Plus, in Italy, you have the Catholic influence and all the rest of it. He was swimming against the tide. And I would say most Jews in Italy probably swam the wrong direction. But he created a group, little by little, one by one, boys and girls, men and women, in this town, in this town, Echad Miyoshnaim and Mishpacha, all across uh, north and central Italy, in which you found a person who would just start keeping things, and uh, a bunch of young guys who start for the first time going to Shoal, which usually was left to the old guys, the Cockers and so forth, and you know now they re-embrace their Jewish identity, and there's just it starts to be a bunch of people that become Shomer Shabbos. Now, the numbers are not large, but geographically it's widespread, and what's really interesting is. It's these people are drawn from high intellectual level, uh, writers, doctors, professors, scientists, linguists, uh, you know, that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Uh, journalists. There were plenty of assimilated Jews in Italy. Like I told you before, big politicians uh, in the government were Jewish. But those guys completely assimilated. I mean, completely assimilated. By them, we have to, I mean, you have to understand, at the time we're talking about, the faith of most of Italian Jews was. Because after all, the kingdom of Italy gave them their civil rights. Each one of them could tell you, my grandfather, my grandfather lived in horrible conditions, and now the new government of Italy, ever since Victor Emmanuel and the successors, have, have gone me a failure, which is true. There's, it's not false. The question is, do you give up all your Judaism for that? And that was the point that our hero was always hammering away. And you should see the way people write about him after he died. He's all he was like, he be, he was the Rebbe that people click with, if you know what I mean, right? What it takes is you have to have, find a Rebbe somewhere in your experience, in 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 uh, elementary school and high school and yeshiva somewhere along the line, maybe in your synagogue, a guy you click with, not just Tom somebody's a rabbi. He definitely was a clicker, and over and over and over again, and that's to me what makes the story very interesting. Formerly, he was the chief rabbi of Florence which is an important community, but it's not the whole Italy. I mean, I would say his community was 9% of all Italy. Um, uh, he also was the 
uh, I guess you say the Rosh Hashiva, the director of the uh, rabbinical college, you know, which was a, had their own program, like I say before. So that's also a source of authority. But other than that, not. So he had to go raise the money all the time and things like that. Uh, being a modern rabbi, he could he he leveraged it. So in other words, the Goyim held from him. He was friends, as I said before, with the king of Italy. Yeah, I'll tell you something. Uh, when Zionism started, he became an enthusiastic Zionist. Uh, in Italy is a different thing. To become, in his time, when you became a Zionist, you became a Shomer Shabbos. I would say eight out of ten times. Now, that sounds funny if you're outside of Italy. What does Zionism have to do with Shemir's Misses? Maybe the opposite. You see? No. In the Western Europe, especially in places like Italy, where the great problem for the Jewish young people was their alienation from self, from their own background, to become a Zionist meant that you proudly proclaim your Jewish identity and you uh, own it, you understand, you embrace it. And since he was the leader of the Zionism, to him, Zionism, embracing your Jewish identity, means the core of it is the religious identity. And therefore, it's surprising, over and over and over again, uh, you know, the Zionist means like this. Now, well, and now you're going to start keeping stuff. Now, I'm not saying everybody overnight started. No, I, no, actually, it's true. Every night overnight started. I don't say they all became totally Shomer Shabbos 1, 2, 3. But over a course of a, a little while, they did. And so you'll see biographies of these Italian guys. They came from a totally non-from situation. And at this age or that age, they started keeping. And this is so opposite of what goes on in the rest of Europe, where everything was in the other direction. That's quite remarkable. So obviously this guy found a, a, a key. Um, now, this has to do with Italian identity and things like that, which is, take too much time to explain. I'm already going too long. But he was able to flip it. And in general, um, I'll tell you something right now. There was a move later on after his death, or maybe he's still alive, that they should pass a resolution. Anybody who wants to hold a position in the Zionist movement in Italy has to be Shomer Shabbos. Now, Jabotinsky fought against it. Jabotinsky was Apicurus. He was born in Odessa. He went to college in Italy during this time, and he was from the exact opposite. He was a Russian Jew running away from Yiddishkeit. Now, he eventually embraced Judaism in the form of, of secular nationalism, but not religion. Religion, he was totally turned off by. He was atheist. I'll say it again. Jabotinsky was a confirmed atheist. See, didn't like any of this stuff that's going on. So he says, you can't make Zionism equal to halachic Judaism. But Rav Shmuel Tzvi Margolis wanted to, right? And if you know anything about the Zionist movement in Italy in the 20th century, you'll know that I'd say most of its big figures were people who were observant, and most of them either either were born from parents like that, or they came from totally fry families, and as a result of their Zionist engagement, we came from... Now, when I say from, I want to be clear here. I'm talking about Shomer Torah Mitzvahs. They didn't have the from stuff of the Haredim. It's not a good a type. It's not Mizrahi. It's its own thing. It's just Italy. And so you see again and again, these people who uh, were combined, uh, how should I put it, the best of European culture with a complete, dedicated uh, commitment to fundamental halacha. So as I said before, professors, uh, army officers, which is weird, um, uh, scientists, uh, I don't know, stuff like that. And including Bible scholars and crit Bible critics, 
His number one uh, Talmud, and the guy who took his place after him was Kasuto. Maybe you've heard of him. <coughs> Kasuto, most of Kasuto, uh, became the chief rabbi of, of Florence after him, that being the 20s and the 30s, and the head of the, of the rabbinical seminary. He became a Bible professor in university, which gave him tremendous prestige. However, in order to be a Bible professor, you have to be in the Bible criticism, knows the Torah is not from God. On the other hand, the big theory at that time was the Torah was put together from 10 different sources. He was always fighting against that. By any other standard, you say somebody doesn't believe the Torah comes from Moshe, it's not from. And I, I get it. What can I tell you? The guy was from. I don't know how he worked it out. Maybe he felt one way in Shul and all the way in university. There are some people like that. You know, like split personality. You don't get that impression. Uh, but, you know, it, what can I tell you? This whole enterprise sometimes is matires a hatmeim and matamis a tahorim. It really is. But I, uh, but it is a fact, whether you like it or not, that these guys held all these views. And at the same time, we're very from. They daven sincerely. They believe in Hashem. They carry out the Torah mitzvahs. They're makbin on Shemir Shabbos. Taras mishpacham. I'm saying, women, this is unheard of. Italian women, girls, come from middle-class, upper-class families, went to heavy education, all the rest of it, and then you flip and you start going to mikvah. I mean, this is just unheard of in, in, in the early 1900s. You see? So he really started a movement. It was very small, but elite. Okay? So uh, Cecil Roth, the English historian, used to hang around Italy in the 20s and the 30s, and he used to hang around these circles. So he writes about it, uh, I forget where, I think in his book on the history of Jews in Italy. And he says it's small, but each guy was like a diamond, you know what I mean? Uh, you could come to this town, and it could be one or two families that keep Shabbos, but very classy. You go to another town, again, it's one or two families that are mocking on stuff, that are Shabbos, Shabbos, or, you know, uh, you, you can eat by them, as you'd say, and things like that. But very classy. Not some little old lady, you know, who's still keeping from because she doesn't know better. The guy could be, like I said before, a physician. I remember there was a guy, who was it, in Perugia. And uh, he was a professor of biology and a, so the head of the department. And he, was the for, he became the shochet for the community. <laughs> you understand? Italy is different. And this guy was the pusher. So he definitely started um, a thing. Uh, he died at the age of 61, 62, something like that. Tell you exactly, he was 64. So, uh, and he died on Purim giving a speech to elementary, Jewish elementary school. Uh, so he was in the middle of trying to, to, to build it up. And if he would have gone another 10 years, it would have built up even more. Uh, but, you know, he, 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 he like they say, passed away rather young, which is a big blow. Uh, as a Zionist, he helped Theodore Herzl a lot. And uh, when Herzl started the Zionist movement, he wanted to. Uh, have interviews with all leaders of the European countries, which he did do, for the most part. And uh, I would remind you, Herzl got a real offer for Uganda. I mean, that's crazy. He didn't represent anybody, but they thought he did. He was able to shoot the ball on them. And uh, England, as you know, offered him uh, uh, Uganda, really, Kenya. That's a piece of the earth. Uh, that shows you what a successful bull artist he was. And he wanted to see the king of Italy, and this guy, Rabbi Margolis, got him in. He says, I know the King of Italy is a friend of mine. And he got him in. And you know, it, and, the, and because of that, Italy supported the Zionist movement, which was important because, believe it or not, once upon, once upon a time, Italy was a world power, once upon a time. And in 1912, 
Italy had a war with Turkey, the Turkish Empire, and Italy conquered Libya, and also the Dodecanese Island, Rhodes. And they ruled it until uh, the Second World War. Which means, if you, all of a sudden, Italy now owned a whole bunch of Jews. I'm talking about the Libyan Jews, get it? Libya. So Tripoli and those kind of places. Uh, you know, like the Halls of Montezuma, the shores of Tripoli. You know, things of that name, Benghazi, things like this now. These were Khashiva Sephardi Kehillas of the North African Jewish variety. And believe me, the Italian government sent him over right away, our hero, because he knew he's a from guy. He should be able to try to explain to everybody how it's going to work under Italy. Uh, it wasn't Pushit, because the Italians were very cruel colonialists. They didn't do anything against the Jews per se, but just as collateral damage, you can get in trouble. I remember Cecil Roth mentioned there was one Italian governor in the 20s, I guess, who said, I want Tripoli to look like a modern Western city, therefore all the stores should be open on Saturday. So it wasn't he's anti-Jewish, he was just stupid. He said, I don't want stores closed on Saturday in the main street, it won't look good. And the, and the Jews in Libya were from, they went up in the store. And he had them like publicly whipped and things like this. That's because our hero was dead at the time. You needed somebody that had good creds with the Italian government. A lot of the Jews are very assimilated. They would say, serves you right for not listening to Italy. You get it? Um, this is the reason, by the way, if you ever go to Italy today, Hayom, today, you'll see a lot of uh, Libyan Jews there who moved there when Gaddafi and this other junk took over because Libya had a Kesha with Italy and uh, uh, and Italy gave them special citizenship and all that. They have, today, I'm speaking today in 2022, when I was in Italy, I saw this, they have moved everything to the right because they're more from, and therefore the Shoals, uh, they, they're the ones who really got rid of the organs and they're the ones who made the services more uh, Hamish, let's put it that way, Sephardi, Sephardi style. And I would say in general they had uptick in the Kashros uh, but if you're going back 100 years ago, when I'm talking about it, or 120 years ago, you really had just a very interesting environment. You would come to Florence and so forth, and you would meet a whole bunch of people that are highly accomplished and are Shomertar Mrs. And they became Shomertar Mrs. under the influence of this guy. And if you came to other towns, they would find that they were influenced by their local rabbi, who was a Talmud and a Musmach of this guy, of Shemul Tzvi Margolis. So he's a name that's not well known. Uh, but it ought to be more well-known. Uh, I don't know how it would work today because he went to conservative. But you see what I'm saying over here. If you look at uh, the Igros Rav Cook, you know what I'm talking about? Igros Araya, which was published in, like in the 30s or something like that. Uh, Rav Cook was many things. One of the things he was was an indefatigable correspondent. He had to be. He kept the Kesha with Rabbanim and, and, and other people all over the world, Jewish. From and not from. You know that about Rokok. He kept up a correspondence with from and not from. Uh, mostly Zionist types. Uh, and all kind of Rabbanim. And he had a lot of correspondence with our hero. And I'll tell you why. Listen closely. Italy, I said before, was a, a shtickle world power. That's a good way of putting it. A shtickle world power. Uh, they were, uh, they had a big army, big navy at that time. Um, and the period I'm talking about, which is the 1890s, was a time when all the European countries wanted to grab all of Africa. 
1885 Berlin Convention. And it used to be nobody was Gyrus Africa, but all of a sudden they wanted more Karka. And England, France, Germany, this, that, and the other, everybody wanted to own a piece of Africa, as big as possible. Uh, and so the main was England and France, of course, and Portugal, and Belgium, and the Belgian Congo. But Italy wanted a piece also, and the end up was what we call today Eritrea. That was that was the only uh, area that was like not conquered by anybody else. Eritrea is more or less across the way from Yemen, next to Ethiopia. After a while, the Italians said, we want to conquer Ethiopia. Uh, they got defeated by the Ethiopian army. That's pretty sad, baby. If you're a white European army with modern weapons, you get defeated by a black African army in 1896, mostly armed with old guns and spears. But it happened. <laughs> that, that's who the Italians are. Um, nevertheless, from that time on, Italy was always looking for ways to expand from Eritrea on the one hand and conquer Ethiopia on the other. Because of that, Italy had a lot of people inside Ethiopia, and they discovered the Ethiopian Jews. Now, I don't mean they discovered them, but in other words, they, one made big contact with them. And, you know, they had falashas, as they called them at that time, but I understand that that's a bad word, so let's just call them Ethiopian Jews. The blacks. And are they Jewish? Are they not Jewish? There's a whole big child in the late 1800s, not only now. Well, guess what? Italy is right there. And so our hero arranged. He said, you know, these people are Jewish. Uh, worst comes to worst, we'll do a Garris or something like that, but we, they are Jewish. The missionaries are always handing on them. The way to do this is to um, bring a dozen or so young black Ethiopian Jews uh, who look like they have a good IQ, and we'll educate them in Italy here in Florence. I'll handle it. And then once they become Talmudic Chacham, we'll send them back to their country to go teach Judaism back there in Ethiopia, which is a smart idea. Now, I remember, he arranged the whole business, and he was constantly in correspondence with Rav Cook. Therefore, if you read the Igris Araya, Rav Cook, he's, always, he's writing to him a lot on the Ethiopian Jewish business. Rav Cook was also sensitive to this. I remember they said they can't find the right person to go there to be a Rebbe. You need the right personality and all that. But instead, they did this way. Uh, it was somewhat successful. I remember a lot of the Ethiopian kids came there, and he put them up, by the way, with Italian Jewish families in Florence. He must have found some of Hasidim to take them in, which is just an interesting uh, story. Unfortunately, most of them died because they weren't used to the European diseases. Like one or two of them survived. But it's a kind of example of, the, uh, of his, uh, what's the right word? Pi'ilut, uh, you know, his uh, being an activist. Uh, because he. He was a person of action, and he was always trying to build up Yiddishkeit as best as he could. The cards were stacked against him, and so he had a, a big challenge on his hands. But he certainly understood that it's all about Shiurim. That comes clear to me whenever you read about him. By that I mean, how do you get people to become firm or something like that? People in the cure business will tell you. you got to get them involved in a Shiur. It's got to be the right kind of Shiur that works for them. And the right kind of level, all the rest of it, from speeches, from videos, from books, from this and that and the other. I mean, they ha may have their uses, but you don't engage with people the way you do in a class, in a class with a give and take. And, and even the Gemara says that. It, I mean, it sounds like a from me doing thing, but it, it kind of works. I'll say it again. Talk to anybody 
in the cure world, and they'll tell you when you, you know, are, are are successful. It's usually because the guy got involved in some kind of class situation, which he or she liked, and after a while they got really in it, and next thing they know they're over their heads, <laughs> and they started keeping things, uh, and it's a very natural kind of way. That's exactly who he was in eighteen ninety, in nineteen hundred, nineteen ten. It's really interesting. Now, you can imagine. And so, so that's the reason why, if you read Italian memoirs, in English or in Ivrit sometimes, uh, they speak about it with the highest veneration. He left behind a whole bunch of Talmudim that spread this word all through the 1920s and 30s. There was a guy put Sivinchi, I don't give all names because it wouldn't be any good. Uh, uh, this, by the way, this Casuto, he ended up running to Israel. His son became the rabbi in Florence after him, Nathan Nelson Casuto. And he was an ophthalmologist, so my Manadin, his ophthalmologist. He was also the Rav there. And he stayed, he could have left. He stayed in the Holocaust to stay with his uh, group, and he was killed by the Germans. Uh, and he organized B'nai Akiva groups and things like that. Uh, and Shurim, and he kept kosher in Auschwitz. How does all these stories? Uh, which is exactly the type of model he left. You know, you, you uh, don't flaunt your Shemiris mitzvahs. But you definitely keep them, everybody can see it, and they get impressed in a very dignified way. Especially, as they say before, if the guy's a senator, uh, a doctor, uh, a professor, uh, you know, a big shot in some area or another, an accomplished person, and he's still keeping Shabbos, keeping kosher, uh, keeping tires and mishpacha, that made a big rush among people. Now, he was up against a hard time, because the Balabatim in general, especially the richy rich Philistine types, were those who were aspiring to be richy rich Philistine types. Didn't like this. They said it's too much Yiddishkeit, too much Zionism, too much Judaism. You know, the rabbi's job should just be like a Catholic priest. Give a blessing, perform a wedding, a burial, say, uh, you know, the, the right words here and there at some ceremony, and then go back home and shut up. Just be happy we're paying you for a job which you don't have to work. And it, it, he, he wasn't like that. And so he had his opponents... And he was a rabbi there from 1890, I think, 1890 to 1922. That means all during the First World War. If you know anything about the First World War, uh, Italy, the Kingdom of Italy, got involved, and they had a major war against Austria-Hungary, against Austria. Uh, this is very well known. For those of you who have a little bit of literary pretensions, this is the Hemingway book of, what, what am I thinking of? Uh, what the heck, you know what? With, with the uh, ambulance driver. Uh, Farewell to arms. Right. He writes about that. Right? But Napoleon once said very famously, and Napoleon was Italian, you know, of course he got, he said, Italy never ends a war on the same side it starts it. You know, in other words, if they're on Team A when the war starts, by the end of the war, they'll be on Team B. And if they're on Team B when the war starts, by the end of the war, they'll be on Team A. And it's actually true. And in World War One, Italy started formally by being part of the Central Powers, which was Germany, Austria, Italy. But then they switched in order to get Kharkov from the Austrians. In other words, they, they joined the British and the French, Russians against the Austrians and the Germans. Uh, the Austrians, without giving you too much military history, the Austrians were on high mountains, and the Italians were to break through in the Isonzo River. They had to attack these high mountains, and the Austrians had machine gun nests, and they just wiped them out. I mean, the Italian army was stupid beyond belief. As a result, 
They just kept charging the machine guns and being mowed down. Italy lost uh, over half a million dead in 1915, 16, 17, 18. Uh, three quarters of which need not have died. And there's even a famous uh, scene where the Austrians at the top say, basta, basta, soldati italiani. You know, enough, enough Italian soldiers. What are you charging for? You're just going to get killed. Don't do it. We feel bad mowing you down. But the officers insisted, and, you know, they're anal beyond belief, and so forth and so on. Uh, so there was a big war um, raging on the northeastern front. And there was a lot of patriotism, nationalism sweeping through Italy. And the Jews, of course, wanted to be more from than the Pope. They wanted to be more Italian than the King of Italy. And our hero was born in Galicia, which is part of the Austrian Empire. So he was an enemy alien, you know, should be kicked out of the country. And he had a hard time. This is such a disgusting story. His own, the, the, the people in his own board of directors uh, squealed on him, Lamalchinum to the Italians, saying he's an enemy alien. He reported these would be the richy rich who think he's too from. They don't like the bad hush boys having on their own children, because that's what happened. He was little by little getting into the children of the rich. You see? And they didn't like that. So they want to use this word as an excuse to get out of it. A Catholic priest spoke up on his behalf to the government and said the guy's okay. <laughs> right? That's a Chela Shema just said. The Jews, you know, told on him, and the Goyim supported him. But, the, you know, but it, it bothered him a lot. You get it? Because nobody likes to be the butt of uh, that kind of Malshinus. But welcome to Italy. You know, what can I tell you? Uh, when the war was over, as I said before, he, he tried, you know, Italy was went through a hard, very hard time after the end of World War One, uh, without, you know, with strikes. And they had a hard time. And he, you know, he tried to hold the fort. Uh, his constant activity was on the Jewish co uh, community. And he was making strides. Now, again, it's a one-by-one one business. It wasn't a thousand people going here and a thousand people there. It was one here, one here, one here, one here, one here. But if you, you know what I mean? It's, it's like if you never stop, then it builds up eventually. You understand? Another one, and then another one, and then another one, and then another one. After a while, you got some numbers there. And there was a very impressive element of highly educated, secularly educated Italian Jews, because all these people had a good secular education. There was no such thing as you're going to yeshiva and no lemurichol. It doesn't exist. It's not, not even up for discussion. Okay? So all these people were very secularly educated, and yet they um, have very high-class Jewish newspapers. They're writing books about how Judaism should confront modern philosophy and modern Bible criticism and modern nationalism and the problems of assimilation. And, you know, it's it's like in a high literary level, high intellectual level. The the small group, the small but growing group he had would really be characterized by a high intellectual level. The only problem was there wasn't enough Gemara, you know. In other words, he did what he could. And he tried to spread as much as he can and he really gave it his all. The conditions in Italy weren't great for this at that time. Maybe, 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 looking with hindsight, you can say like that other guy, he should have siphoned off 10, 15, 20 guys and just started a yeshiva, full-time learning. You know, who knows? You know, who? I, you know, it's a what-if. He didn't do that. Instead, he worked like like an old-fashioned rabbi on the whole Kehillah and trying his best all the time. And, uh, and he dropped dead on Purim in 1922, while he was giving a speech to, like I said, the Jewish elementary school that he was the principal of, 
among other things. And so, now here's the the, the thing. He died in 22, 1922. That's the year Mussolini took over and became the dictator of Italy and brought in the fascism. The fascism was a dictatorship for about 15 years, 16 years approximately. Um, it was a fascism like Putin. It was not against the Jews. Matter of fact, Mussolini many times said, I'm not against the Jews. I'm pro-Zionist. I want to help Israel, things like that. He even allowed Jabotinsky to have some uh, training courses in Italy and things of that nature. Uh, but Mussolini was a schmo, and he had no uh, character, and he eventually turned and became pro-Arab. He joined Hitler, as we all know, etc. But I'm just saying, as far as Italy is concerned, so these um, key roof-type activities continued after the death of our hero into the 20s and the 30s. Now, mind you, they faced the counter-pressure of fascism, materialism, European uh, skepticism, communism, socialism, fascism, all this other junk. You know, it, it was a hard-ism era. In spite of that, these guys had their chugim, uh, they had their shoals, of course, they had these, uh, uh, what's the right word, national, I won't call it NCSY, that's the wrong word to use, but you know, you know what I mean when I say that. They had the equivalent of some kind of NCSY thing where you got together for Shabbatones. It's quite remarkable. All with, and and uh, Zionist activity. All of this is um, is what he called, is uh, part of the basic story of what's going in Italian Jewry. And it's a what-if story. The reason I say it's a what-if story is that um, as the 30s went by, so... Uh, the anti-Semitism built up, and all of a sudden Mussolini uh, flipped and went pro-Hitler totally and passed laws against the Jews and things like this, and then World, when World War II came out, although it's a complicated story, they killed the Jews, or a lot of them, unless the ones who could hide. Uh, and so basically, it, Italian Jewry, the way I described it, was busted by the Holocaust. But what are you talking about? You're talking about 35, 40,000 Jews total. So it was a small number. And when the war was over, whatever they had rebuilt in Italy, in terms of Yiddishkeit, was from his Talmudim. Okay? Uh, I won't go through the names, but whoever survived the war and was a Talmud of his started, again, with even smaller communities to try to bring in as much Yiddishkeit as they could in the way I'm describing, which is in a very intellectualist, European, uh, high-class type way. And I can only say this. Reform Judaism and that kind of thing never really took off in Italy. Uh, the most you can say was a shvacha, orthodoxy, but thanks to Rabbi Shmuel Margolis, the orthodoxy began already in his time to move little by little to the right. He wasn't successful with the big ball about them. After the Second World War, there was greater success, especially when the old Italian anal types, the Richie Riches, you know, either died or assimilated. And these new Jews moved in from Libya and eventually from Iran and places like that. Uh, so it, it, I think it moved everything somewhat to the right. All right, everything to the right. I remember that. Now, I don't know all the details of what's going on in Italy. I just remember we had, I forget her name, a very good tour guide in Rome. Everybody uses her. I forget her name. Uh, she's not from, but she's Italian. She's Roman. So she's Orthodox in that way. And she said, you know, 
I like the old rabbi before because he wasn't too, you know, he wasn't a fanatic. The current rabbi, I forget his name, Ricardo to something or other, uh, he's too religious. Everything's halakha, halakha, halakha. <laughs> of course, for my group, that was a compliment. She did me as a compliment. But Italy, you know, always had this characteristic of Italian Jewry, had this characteristic, you know, they're very uh, European and aware of the culture, but they have these uh, individuals here, there, here, there, there, and there, who themselves are very impressive because of their adherence to uh, Torah mitzvahs. Um, and in that little culture, it's a tiny culture, Sri Margolis, our guy was like a major saint, so to speak, if I can use that terminology. Now, it's not typical, it's not American, and usually when you go, as far as I'm aware, when an American guy like myself or a sponsor that goes to Italy, you go on a tour, so you don't really meet these people, as far as I'm aware. In my, if I ever went on a second trip to Italy, I would probably have in mind to do more of that than just see the sights. The sights are also impressive. So you meet the Italian Jews themselves, the ones of the type I'm talking about, uh, who are thoroughly Italian, but are part of this. They still have the Collegio Rabbinico. I think now they have, I think everything can move to the right. I think now, if you're in that program, you have to spend a year or two, like in KBY or something along those lines, you know, uh, because they realize that's where you're going to get the real learning. And uh, nothing wrong with that, okay? On the other hand, you're going to come back, you have no Italian uh, business, all that stuff. So uh, it's a different kind of mahalach. Uh, and that's why Florence, when I go there, yes, it's very impressive in terms of the art, no question about it. Uh, it certainly is. But to me, myself and I, I think the story of Florence in the in the early 20th century is uh, the most interesting to a uh, religious Jew. That's what I think. Anyway, without any further ado, I've gone way over my usual time. I want to thank the sponsors, and uh, they'll see now if he uh, sees anything of this when you're in, in Florence. And uh, I'm thinking about doing a talk about Putin because a guy asked me a bunch of questions saying to JCC, if I can find a sponsor this week, then I'll do something about Putin because I'm not sure people realize where he's coming from. Uh, but anyway, that's an afterthought. Have a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.